In Dick of the Week, we talk about dirty stuff and use dirty language. We're rated M for mature. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> dick of the Week. Dick of the Week. Dick of the Week. Dick. 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 Dick of the Week. Dick. Dick. of the Week. Dick of the Week. Dick of the Week. Dick. Dick. Give me that D. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Dick of the Week. I am your host, Liz Zirkel, and Stephanie is still on baby leave. She'll be hopefully back sometime after the holidays, but I have a very special guest with me today, coming all the way from New York City, Miss Hattie Hayes. Hello! Thank you so much. I'm so excited. What a what a dickless week this week is going to be. <laughs> yeah. The, the funny thing is, like... I think we've had two men on the show before. It isn't very common that we actually have dicks on the show. <laughs> right. It's, it's, you know what? I think that's, um, let the girls bring the dicks. That's, that's all right. That's, that's the future liberals want. I'm, I'm very good with it. We have the big dick energy. It's fine. That's very true. I've been told that on multiple occasions. I've, well, I've been told they have a lot of different energies, but BDE is up there. Definitely top three. <laughs> Well, uh, today we have a very exciting topic. We're going to be talking about the new Hulu movie, Happiest Season. But before we jump into that, Hattie, what is uh, some of your background when it comes to romance books, romance movies, things around along those lines? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked. Um, so I am a, a big, I'm a big romantic and I definitely came into it kind of later in life. I remember being in you know middle school and high school and my mom and I watching rom-coms and me never shedding a tear and never getting emotional and being like uh this no I'm too good for this and something happened when I was you know in in high school and I was getting closer to adulthood and one day a switch flipped and suddenly I was just any movie we watched with even a vaguely romantic plot line I was sobbing um I'm very very sensitive very romantic. Um, I'm a big reader. I watch a lot of a lot of movies. I've, as you've seen on Twitter, I've been going through a lot of the holiday rom coms, just uh, working my way through them. And one thing that I've been doing a lot of in quarantine is watching um, some more of the classic queer rom coms, which there aren't that many. A lot of of the queer rom coms that you see are super duper dated, um, and that you know. That makes sense, I guess, in terms of that's that's why people were so excited for Happiest Season is because it felt like, you know, maybe this is our, our shot at good representation. And I, uh, I'm i also, as you know this too, I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. I'm actually right now wearing all Taylor Swift merch. And I um, ran a limited series podcast with my friend Sarah Kennedy, who's also a comedian like me, that focused on queer interpretations of Taylor Swift's lyrics. So... When it comes to queer romance, uh, some would say, and I, I'm talking about myself, some would say that few people write a uh, queer yearning more well than or better than Taylor Swift. <laughs> and I, I feel qualified. I I feel qualified to say this. I'm I'm a bisexual woman, and I don't think I've ever associated a Taylor Swift song with a man, um, or at least not primarily with a man. So I I feel qualified to say. Uh, the official soundtrack of Queer Yearning is Taylor Swift. There we have it. It's official. <laughs> Which is fascinating because I feel like Taylor, way more than any other female artist, constantly is 
picked on because of her male relationships she's had through the years and everyone assumes every song is based on whatever breakup has been the most recent one so it's fascinating to hear and I I remember Jeremy telling me that you had that podcast but it is fascinating to hear that you don't even think of men at all (laughs) when you're examining her lyrics well part of the thing too is I I was a closeted teen um and Nothing is a bigger tell that someone is, or or at least for me, nothing for me was a bigger tell that I was queer than how boy crazy I acted and how anytime that someone wanted to assume I was interested in a boy, I was like, yes, that is true. It is the boy who I like and only the boy. Um, (laughs) I was, if people were going to assume that I was interested in just men. I was going to let them think that for a long time. That makes sense. Especially, I mean, like, I feel like now teenagers have it a little bit easier. <laughs> like, I feel like things like TikTok and Instagram and all that have made it, like, not cool to be queer, but, like, way more generally accepted than, like, when we would have been in high school. Right. Well, and you can actually interact with other queer people. And I remember, um, you know, when I was coming of age, uh, there were still spaces on the internet that were queer spaces, but more often than not, uh, they felt anonymous. And now I think for as much as, you know, pivoting to video is something that we talk about um, and kind of make fun of from a media standpoint, democratizing, the kind of democratizing of queer identity in that way has made it so people don't necessarily feel like they have to be anonymous online, just mm-hmm. you're not as anonymous online because um, corporations don't want you to be. But um, I think that's also helped people connect to their queer identities and their queer communities in a way that feels more authentic. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you've mentioned a little bit that you, you're a comedian. Obviously, you've done some podcasting. Um, what, what else What else makes Hattie Hayes Hattie Hayes? Well, Hattie Hayes writes. That's um, what Hattie Hayes has been doing all of this year. I I know you You just finished NaNoWriMo. Um, mm-hmm. We were recording this in early December. And I didn't NaNoWriMo, but I did write, um, I did finish writing my first novel this year. And Yay! I'm very excited. It is, it is gay. It is a gay love story. Oops. Uh, oops. <laughs> All about sexuals. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I also um, am working on a number of different short stories that I am constantly brushing up and resubmitting places and not getting published but someday and go figure they're pretty much all gay too oops uh look I have a type um (laughs) uh, yeah I uh I am a a writer I guess more right now than anything else I also do sketch comedy I also do musical comedy but uh those things are on hold while we're all trapped in our homes and I'm fine with that Yeah, and you know, being in New York, you've been more trapped than say those of us in the Midwest. So even though we should be equally trapped, right. but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> very strong feelings. Very strong feelings. <laughs> so I mean, that's good. That's really great that you've been able to use pandemic time for more writing and focusing like that. I feel like it took me a long time to kind of like find my groove with it like it it was very difficult for me to be creative initially I would say almost like the first half of everything that's been going on so yeah I commend you that you've been productive and figuring out shit and well thank you yeah not not to be too real I had my own like private mental breakdown most of last year so like all of the uh like 
mental meltdowns that everyone else has been rightfully having in quarantine, I'm like, oh, I did this last July. I stayed in bed for a month. Uh, I gotta get, I gotta get caught up. I'm real sorry. I'm also very anxious. I'm just, uh, I, I'm really sorry, guys. I already like did the whole be trapped in my own mind thing. I just, I can't do it again. I really can't. So, um, yeah, I, I did translate that like frenetic, anxious energy immediately into just doing shit. Mostly just because last year I was a total mess. And I mean, you know, timing wise, I couldn't have, couldn't have chosen to have a complete nervous breakdown at a better time. Uh, <laughs> really good job, me. <laughs> oh, gosh. So you said your your book is a gay love story. Is it actually a romance or is it just a story that has a love component? Uh, it's romantic, but it's also sad. It's also a fantasy. It is. I'll tell you about it. So it, it follows two women from their childhood when they are young girls and they are best friends and they create this sort of fantasy world that they both inhabit. Um, it, it's literally just playing pretend, uh, but it becomes very real to them. And as they get older, they realize that their connection is really, really close, really intimate, not always healthy. And as they start to grow apart, they're still both interacting in basically what is a shared psychic space. So eventually they do part ways, but they're still connected um, through this kind of magical realm that they both still are active in. And then as they get older, they reconnect, but they're then at very different points of their lives. And they have kind of differing grasps on what is real and what is fantastic. So uh, it is a romance. It ends currently not that sadly, but kind of sadly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, um, it's a story that I, I had kind of in my own head for a long time, just based off of relationships I've had with other women. And then, mm -hmm. um, I had kind of tossed it around and thought of it. And then the magical element kind of came into it and made it click. So I, I wrote that in September and, uh, now I'm workshopping it. I'm in a in a weekly workshop class uh, with one of my favorite authors, which is very cool. So that's um, what consumes my brain most days is thinking how much I should let these fictional people live their lives and how much I should make them miserable. <laughs> <laughs> Having that workshop component is, I think, incredibly necessary, especially when you have a first draft and you want to polish it and make it better. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky that I have writer friends that I can rely on for that kind of beta reading. Tell me, tell me what's wrong and how to fix it yeah. <laughs> kind of situation. Yeah. But it's, it's scary. It's scary putting yourself out there and be like, I'm so proud of this thing, but you're going to tell me everything that sh is shitty about it now. <laughs> well, and that's something that I've had to get good at from doing comedy and especially doing sketch mm -hmm. comedy where you're always working with other people is I've had to teach I've had to teach myself to say, okay, give me the things that really work that I should do more of and then tell me what I should never ever fucking do again. Uh, <laughs> my instinct is please let me let me flagellate myself. Let me torture myself. Tell me how I'm a bad person and don't deserve to experience joy. And you know, then the people who you're either working with or workshopping with are like, hey, not that intense, babe. You're cool. Let's let's talk about like, you know, structure. The structure sound good? Should we start there? It's not, 
it's not a moral failing if you accidentally rename a character halfway through your manuscript, okay? Like, you're cool. The, 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 you're not going to go to book jail, okay? okay. <laughs> you're all right. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're completely right in that it's, it's a learned skill to put yourself at the mercy of other people who ostensibly care about your well-being, but, you know, ostensibly. Yeah, and I I I did a, a master's in fine arts program, and so that that was definitely working on my on my MFA. Um, that definitely had to learn how to have thick skin. Yeah. As much as I hated it, like I still to this day, like it makes me very anxious. I think it makes me more anxious when it's people I know well and care about versus like random classmate that like. Maybe I'll have class with you again, but maybe I won't. Whatever. Your opinion, I can easily dismiss <laughs> if I don't like it. It's like, but, like doing karaoke with like strangers and acquaintances at like a kind of friend's birthday versus doing karaoke with your whole family. Mm-hmm. Like which one mm-hmm. of those sounds more nerve wracking to you? <laughs> yeah, I'd rather have the strangers. <laughs> and I love karaoke, but it's definitely less pressure when it's, you know, my friend's ex's fiance who I'll never see again versus like my coolest aunt who I need to impress desperately. <laughs> especially because the strangers, I feel like, especially if they've been drinking all night, are going to be like, woo, the whole time anyway. Yes, they are. They, man, I miss strangers being like, woo. <laughs> I, I miss strangers. Strangers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> I miss being out in public. Happy pandemic. Happy pandemic. Happy pandemic. <laughs> so you you mentioned that you've been going through some old um queer rom-coms. Are they specifically holiday ones or just general rom-coms? Oh, just general ones. I watched what is it? Can't Have you seen Can't Think Straight? No. Um I had read the book and then watched the movie and it's cute. Um, but it is very of its of its time. There was another one I watched um, on recommendation of a friend. Let me find it. That was uh, not. It's kind of rom com. Let let me. I can't remember what it was. It is the the movie I just recently. This is very much a quarantine watch. Mambo Italiano, which is from two thousand three. It's Italian and Canadian, and it is very much of its time. And it's it's thematically similar kind of to Happiest Season, where it's a coming out story, more or less. Mm-hmm. But a 2003 coming out story and a 2020 coming out story, I don't think should feel as similar as these two did. <laughs> oh, God. That's going to be my, my, that's, I think most people's, most people's main critique of Happiest Season right now is kind of just, it's, it's seeming temporal displacement in um in terms of where it feels like it belongs on our timeline of progress and and queer representation in film yeah and then have you have you read any good books recently romance or otherwise i think i might have mentioned on twitter i just finished red white and royal blue um yes i i actually i had been on the wait list at the library forever and ever and then um i I, I shit you not. I watched Happiest Season, and then I went onto Amazon and I just downloaded it to my Kindle. I just downloaded Red, White, and Royal Blue to my Kindle because I was like, "Is this going to make me feel better?" 
Uh, it did. It made me feel better. I um, I finished it. I read pretty much nonstop for the rest of the weekend. And then, I mean, it's, you know, what, 400 some odd pages. Um, yeah. I just read until I was done. And then I put my Kindle on my night table and fell asleep. Uh, <laughs> it was perfect. It was ideal. And it was just very cute, very charming, very... Um, I recommended it to my mother. It was like, hey, I know that you usually do like mystery murder books, but if you don't want to think about murder, um, this has none. <laughs> like, you need a break. Yeah, I I hardcore considered doing a reread of it uh, right at election time because I'm like, I need this happy timeline of politics. <laughs> I will say, I'm very glad I waited until after the election to read it because it Mm -hmm. felt like, ha, okay, we're, we're progressing. This feels more like what we can be, you know, Mm -hmm. closer. And I think if I had read it prior to the election, I would have been like even more white knuckling than I already was. Um, Yeah. That makes sense. Cause you're like, damn it. (laughs) Why isn't this a reality? (laughs) It's like, why can't I have what they have? Yeah, I, I I really liked that book a lot. It's very very charming. I've recommended it to a couple people since, just in conversation. And it, I really liked it because it felt contemporary while also existing in a different timeline. You know, like you said, it's it's very much how things could have been. Um, to mm-hmm. but it it also didn't do that thing that some books and movies do to try and feel contemporary where it jams a lot of references in that are not going to make sense and you know between the time the manuscript is submitted and when it's actually published right because I mean when she was I think it I don't want to misuse Casey's uh pronouns I don't know what Casey goes by so I'm just gonna say Casey uh I know Casey wrote that book before the 2016 elections happened and then it just wasn't published until after the fact. So it was kind of like a, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> kind of feel like, like the, uh, yeah. That but I think, it, I think it worked out just fine. That makes it even more impressive that it feels like contemporary and fresh without being gimmicky. Um, yeah. That makes me like it even more. Look, you, you, we've been talking for like, what, 15 minutes and you already took this book that I like and made me like it even more. That makes me, um, <laughs> good talk. If, you can just be like, hey, you know what? I'm tired. I'd be like, you know what? This was good. This this made my team So, Well, if you haven't read this one and you want another gay romance that is uh, in need of a fake boyfriend, then I definitely recommend Boyfriend Material by Alexis Hall. Oh, I will definitely add that to my add that to my to be read pile. It's another British set book. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> I've been I like weirdly like several books in a row was reading like by English authors and I was like so I was getting very confused with certain things like the the terminology that they use it's different for than what we say and I was just like what like they're talking about like I was putting I put on my jumper I'm like wow these guys really like jumpers (laughs) I'm like oh that's a cardigan there okay (laughs) all right that's I guess I gotta go put stash this in the boot (laughs) <laughs> that's always that's my favorite criticism <laughs> well let's take a quick little commercial break and then we will jump into talking about happiest season yay i'm so excited 1026 years ago superstition and the sword ruled it was a time of fear a time of gargoyles Rawr! 
Liz, what are you doing? Oh, hey there, Daniel. Uh, I didn't see you. Um, I'm just watching Gargoyles. The mid-90s Disney cartoon? Yeah. And do you always yell along with Goliath? Do you not? Fair point. So, did you maybe want to watch with me? Oh, and then make a podcast about it? Hells yeah! Yes, I'm so into it! We are Defenders of the Night! The most trusted source for top-to-bottom coverage of everyone's favorite mid-90s animated program, Gargoyles! Find us at CalamityCast.com or your favorite podcatcher. Roar! All right, welcome back. Um, And now it is time for Hattie and I to jump into... This movie. <laughs> oh, this movie. And I'll I'll be honest, all I knew about this going in was the cast and um that it was directed by Cleo Duvall. And I didn't I purposefully like didn't watch the trailers. I was like, no, no, I want to be surprised. I didn't read any of mm. the free coverage. And there was so much hype on social media. Um so going into it, all I knew was that people were discussing it and it had lots of very attractive people in it. Very attractive people. So, like, I mean, the two main people are Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis, but then we also have Allison Brie, Dan Levy, Audrey Plaza. Um, Mary Steenburgen, a classic, classic hottie. Yes, and then yes. There was someone else who was hot and wonderful. Oh, Anna Gasteyer is in it. When she showed up, I made a very loud noise. I was just like, hey! <laughs> she actually has a wonderful christmas album also really yeah yeah she's just great and see you understand why i I shriek yeah well and i and i feel like you know coming off of uh schitt's creek everyone's on a a dan levy kick right now yes they are so when i heard that he was gonna be in a holiday rom-com i was like well hell yeah sign me up and then when i heard like like i Kristen Stewart is an actress that has grown on me a lot through the years. Like uh, my first experience with her was obviously Twilight back in the day. And that was not great for anybody. <laughs> but I I feel like she gets to just pick really cool kind of indie and quirky movies to do now. And and I, I like her. Like I, I feel like people don't give her I mean, a lot of people give her the credit she's she's deserves but a lot of people just think of her strictly as Bella from Twilight and don't realize that she's grown a lot in the last however many years ago that came out 10 15 years yeah. oh my god well and and the first I didn't see any of the Twilight movies because I was supremely uncool and I was just like oh no vampires too scary uh, I have since grown <laughs> up a little I could probably stomach the Twilight movies now but I haven't yet the first thing I saw Kristen Stewart in was the Runaways, the Joan Jett, um, mm. you, you know, she's she's cast, I think, very well as Joan Jett there. And then um, the last year, last summer, I went and saw in theaters Charlie's Angels. And it was, she was phenomenal in it. She was just so funny and goofy and silly and a joy to watch. And it felt so different from like how she's portrayed, you know, that this last week, um, there was that footage of her being the only person in the audience at the Chanel show. <laughs> Delightful. That's how all fashion shows should be. Like just Kristen Stewart alone on a bench. Let her watch and let her have fun. And then only only her. She's the only one who's earned it. But it, it was nice watching her in Charlie's Angels to see her be so different 
from how she how she's portrayed and kind of how she portrays herself but also mm-hmm. so very clearly like doing her job well like she's still very much acting you know she's she's doing a wonderful job of it she's just also clearly having a lot of fun so it was just it was nice to see her happy and i did not i did not get the feeling of her enjoying herself in happiest season uh, which was a bummer for me. Yeah. Sometime this weekend, Jeremy and I uh, watched, what did we watch? Um, we watched Personal Shopper. And that's another one where, I mean, I think they just, a lot of uh, directors give her these roles that aren't super high energy. Right. Like, I don't think it's because she's not high energy. Like, it's just the roles that they give her. And it, it kind of had that same feel as a character as Happiest Season, where you're just like, come on, girl. <laughs> like, yeah. It's okay. Yeah, it's very brooding. It's very like you you get the sense throughout the course of the movie that she really just wants to be alone. Like she just wants she just wants a little bit of space and a little bit of quiet and that she never ever gets it. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't seen Happiest Season, um, I mean, we're we're gonna be talking about the movie, so if you don't want to listen to this till you watched it, pause this, stop this. Yeah, go hop onto Hulu and watch it now. And if you have seen it or don't care about spoilers, and keep listening. But so I went into it. I had seen the preview for it. And I but I thought based on how the preview made it look, I thought that Parker or Harper, that Harper, her girlfriend, didn't tell her about her parents not knowing that A, that she's a lesbian and B, that she has a girlfriend and lives with her and all that. I thought she didn't tell her that till they were like in the driveway of the house. So when it actually happened on the road to her parents' house, I was like, okay, well that's at least a little better, I guess. But I don't know. I actually, I started rewatching it today and made it about like an hour into it or maybe 45 minutes into it. So I saw the whole started bit again and it's just really frustrating to me because from the get-go, like she she knew what she was doing when she asked her to come home for Christmas. Right. And then she wakes up the next morning and she's like, uh-oh, what did I do? Like it wasn't like she like was super drunk and like blurted it out or anything like that. Like she made the conscious decision, oh, I would really like my girlfriend Abby to come home with me. Right. And got Abby finally excited about doing something like that and she's like I don't know so like from the get-go I was frustrated with Harper it also feels like they're at different places in terms of how they're thinking of the relationship because Harper is at the level where she wants to introduce Abby to her family but she's not really willing to come out to her family yet she's wants her to meet she wants Abby to meet her family just not as her girlfriend whereas Abby is considering marriage. She's like, yeah, you know what? I think I want to ask Harper to marry me. Um, so it's, they seem to be at very different places emotionally from the get-go. And I don't feel by the end of the movie that even though they act on their feelings, I don't think that they've actually processed those feelings. And especially I don't think Harper has come to terms with what she wants out of her relationship with Abby. I don't feel like they really have emotional progress, I think they kind of stumble Mm-mm. through the typical, like, you know, what we in the jokes industry call farcical mix-em-ups uh, that happen in a rom-com. I mean, they kind of stumble through the plot, but we don't really see them react to the plot until the family has a big screaming fight. Yeah. And like, the thing that frustrated me was, A, it wasn't even just that Harper hadn't come out to her family. Like, I've 
never had have had to come out to anybody before. So I can't judge her for how she handles that situation. But the fact that she lied to Abby about it is what really pissed me off. Like had Harper had been open with communication because I mean they've been together for what at least a year based yeah. on the opening uh, credits of the movie. So it's like I don't know. That's an awfully big secret to be keeping from your partner. Oh, by the way, my family doesn't know any of this. Mm-hmm. They don't know anything about you. They actually don't know anything about me. Right. And I, you know, and I've lied to you about it this entire time. Like to me, that is even worse. It feels very much to me like Harper uses Abby as kind of a human shield. And yeah. I think another reason it bothers me is because it's established up front and communicated throughout that Abby's parents are both dead. She's an orphan. Uh, she's a literal orphan, not just like a, oh, you know, you can't go home for the holidays at, in college, so why don't you come to your cool professor's house, orphan? Like, she's an actual mm-hmm. orphan. And I really don't like that Harper does this thing where she takes pity, kind of, on Abby, not liking Christmas because she can't be with her family. And she says, well, you can spend time with my family. But then she builds an emotional barrier that prevents Abby from really having a familial connection. So it feels very much like a like carrot on a stick thing where she's where Harper's using Abby to kind of protect herself from her family, but she's also putting Abby in a position where she doesn't really get to connect and be honest with these people who would, if they got married, become her family. So that really struck me as kind of terrible and really thoughtless on Harper's part as a character. Yes. But yeah, I uh it, it really from the very beginning rubs me the wrong way that kind of Harper kind of manipulates Abby into saying, well this is your option for Christmas if you want to celebrate. Um it feels really shitty to me. Yeah, uh so as someone who by the age of 19, which is the age that Abby was when she lost her parents, I also had lost my parents. That whole thing outraged me mm-hmm. like m- more than I because I knew going into it that like oh by the way uh, my parents know that you're here think that you're here just because you don't have anywhere else to go like I knew that going into it but seeing how like you said Harper more or less manipulated her and then the way that the family treats her the entire time like oh poor you said orphan girl and like I don't know if that was the writers thinking they were being funny like taking a situation that is a, a hard situation and trying to like add levity to it or something but they everything about it pissed me off like I was so outraged <laughs> Jeremy was probably like you need to calm down yeah. but like the like the, the people do stupid things all the time I get that like I I you know if I mention nonchalantly like oh yeah like my parents are dead like people freak out and then they're like well they don't know how to handle it and then they're like well what happened like can I ask questions things like that and I'm like what yeah whatever it's it's fine and I think Abby kind of has the same reactions like they're like I'm so sorry she's like um I mean it happened what 13 years ago like I'm okay kind of situation but it's like if you knew I mean at this point they just think she's a friend but if you know your daughter or your sister is bringing a friend home who doesn't have family of her own because of something like this the very first fucking thing you're going to say to her is shit about that? No, that's ridiculous. You know, people people online have had a lot of discourse about the parts of this movie that feel unrealistic. And to me, the thing that's the least realistic is 
how all of Harper's family seems to have just no compassion whatsoever for other people, especially for Abby. But you also see this with the way that, you know, they treat Jane, the fun sister. Oh my well. God. Um, I mean, they're terrible to her. They're terrible to the Allison Bree sister who, you know, they've kind of positioned in this high and mighty, sort of like, you know, kind of fallen from grace because she was a lawyer and now she's not. And they think that she's a failure because she's not a lawyer. And they, you know, they don't have a lot of compassion for her reality as a mother. She's, as we learned towards the end, going through a divorce. Yeah. The, the parents really don't have any compassion at all for anyone. And it's one thing when it's your own family who act that way and you just have to deal with it or you have to set a boundary. But the fact that Abby is introduced to this family who's never met her, didn't know she existed, and they immediately treat her with that lack of compassion I found I wanted to not believe it. I wanted it to be unbelievable and I chose not to believe it because it just seemed so very just aggressively cruel um, and yeah. and glib. And it just felt from the very beginning like they were so self-obsessed um, and Abby was kind of an accessory to their holiday rather than someone they were welcoming into their family because they wanted her to be there. And, like, I believe that there are shitty families like that. But, like, they – to me, the pro- the problem was they all felt like caricatures more than actually well-rounded characters. And so it's, like – I mean, even Jane, who I ended up liking a whole lot eventually, but, like, the first 30 minutes we see her, she's so in your face and so just, like, very bubbly, but not even, like – I don't know. There's something about her that, it like – it's almost like they got partway through filming and we're like, okay, you need you need to reel it in just a tiny right. bit. And she's like, okay, 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 cool. And then from there on, hits it on the nail, like hits it on the head and like is, is great as Jane. But like the first little bit, I was like, is there, like, is there some, is she okay? Like, what is, what is this person? And I mean, all of them, like, I felt like her mom and like the mom and dad being more like caricatures was more okay to me because I'm like, oh, they're old, they're rich, they're out of touch, like whatever. But I felt like all in Harper even became this way when she was around all of them. Like, I felt like none of them had real personalities other than they're like, okay, you're this sister. So that is all we're going to do for you and what you need to like emphasize. And I mean, Abby, of course, is the main character, but Harper is also very important and also, I would say, a main character. And in romance, I feel like it's really important that you understand your characters and why they're acting the way they're acting and their motivations and, you know, their desires and things like that. And she just feels so two-dimensional two-dimensional to me for so much of the movie. I'm glad you said that because I was I was thinking about this on the way home and I was actually thinking about it in the context of another great holiday romance, which is Love Actually, which has a huge, huge cast, tons mm-hmm. of characters, tons of plot lines. Um, you don't really get that much screen time with every character. So how is it that in Love Actually, which has all these different stories that are interconnected, how is it that I feel more strongly about each and every one of those characters that I do with this family who I have, you know, a full, what, 90 minutes with? Um, you know, we. it seems so strange to me that you can make a romance where I feel like I know the ensemble and the main couple the exact same amount. Yeah. Well, and I think that's as, as this movie goes on, we we learn a couple things. We we know that her family is still obsessed with her high school boyfriend that she dated who 
you know, is like the ideal man that they want her to be with. And she's having to pretend like, oh, I'm not into him, but just because I'm not into him, not because I'm a lesbian. No, no. And then we meet her ex-girlfriend. And it's when we meet Audrey Plaza's character, Riley. That's when I was like, okay, Harper just fucking sucks. Because (laughs) we learn that she pulled all this shit with Riley. And you're like, okay, but... At least then they were younger. Like, it still sucks, but they were younger, so it makes a little bit more sense. But it's like, this is apparently just Harper's cycle. She right. dates someone and falls in love with them and then won't come out. And then we learned that she actually did, like, something really, really shitty to Riley, which was, like, make her look like the unhinged, like, stalker girl or whatever, because in order to save face for herself. Right. I'm like, that's incredibly shitty to do well and when we think of in in straight rom-coms in in heteronormative rom-coms when you introduce an ex it's either to make there be conflict because it's like oh is their ex going to try to get back with them i better you know fight for what i the person i love or it's to show oh our main character has changed and they're not going to treat their soulmate in the story like they treated their ex And in Happiest Season, they introduce Riley, and she's just like, yeah, she did the same thing to me. She has always been shitty. What? No, that's not... That's... It breaks a rom-com convention in a way, but not in the way that you want it to. And, and, you know, I was was thinking about this when when Aubrey Plaza's character is introduced. You think, okay, this is kind of interesting because it's taking that trope of, oh, the ex has showed up. Things are going to get jealous and petty. And instead, what we have is Kristen Stewart and Aubrey Plaza having like a, a real genuine connection and a friendship. Um, and that's, I think, something that's fundamental to queer culture is having that, you know, you, you don't have the competitive concept that compulsory heter- heterosexuality puts on you. I mean, because mm. that, the thing is, rom-coms are very often structured in a way that makes us think that the patriarchy and and patriarchal systems are structured for love and fulfillment to happen. Um, And that's a very valid critique of rom-coms, I think, from someone who loves them. I think I'm I'm very allowed to say, yeah, rom-coms are pretty much designed to show us men can change. Um, (laughs) Like, that's what they're there for. And I think when you have a queer rom-com that could do something like show that you can have healthy relationships with your exes, you can be friends with your exes, your current partner can be friends with your ex, and it takes that chance to show the world as it could be if, you know, people operated the way that at least, you know, me and a lot of my queer friends do. I can't think of any of my exes who I'm not friends with. Instead of taking that and using it to showcase a true queer love story. Instead, it takes it and just shows us what a dirtbag our main character is. And it's easy to feel cheated, I think, when you have mm-hmm. that expectation of thinking that you're about to see something that reflects your own community. And instead, what you see is that the person you're supposed to be rooting for has just always sucked. Well, and, and then the amount of time that Abby and Riley spent together, Abby seems way happier than anything we had seen with her and Harper since they arrived. Like they had the happy moment, uh, you know, before at the very beginning of the movie, but you know, from the moment she arrived 
at this town. Abby, like the only time we saw her really enjoying herself and having a good time, like they sing with the drag queens and they're having so much fun. And and it's when she's with Riley. So I think it makes sense when you look at Twitter, a lot of people were like, wait, why why didn't Abby and Riley get together? Which I still think is is the is the romance I want. It's the romance America wants. And and <laughs> and also when literally that that very beginning moment where they're happy, they're sitting on the roof, they're making googly eyes at each other, then Abby falls off the roof. Like they do not get they do not get even a whole minute and a half of happiness before like something ridiculous happened. And it's never Harper the one getting hurt. It's always Abby the one getting hurt or humiliated or literally trapped in a closet, which yep. boy, that was so on the nose. And it made me it made me mad that they literally put Chris Stewart in a closet when it's Mackenzie Davis's character is the one who's insisting on staying closeted. Like every single thing that this movie does that's supposed to be kind of self-referential feels just more like an insult. It made me uncomfortable on my first watch and I was kind of like, ah, like, why does this sit weird with me? And it wasn't until I was thinking through like every individual scene when it's revealed when Abby and Harper basically come out to uh, Harper's family it's in the context of also revealing that Alison Bree's sister, sorry, she has a name. I'm calling her Alison Bree's sister. Uh, what is her name? So- Sloan. Sloan. Just like in Ferris Bueller. One thing that really bothered me is when Abby and Harper's relationship, the nature of it, is revealed to the family, it's also revealed that Sloan is getting a divorce. And I really didn't like that those two things were sort of put together. I didn't I didn't like that they were represented congruently within the narrative because nothing is wrong with getting a divorce, but the family in the story has made it clear that they see Sloane's marriage as what provides her value to the family. And also for Sloane and her husband, getting divorced is still, you know, it's a sad. It's it's very clearly something that even though maybe it's the best course of action for them, it's still something to grieve. Like it's still the end yeah. of the relationship. Whereas Abby and Harper's identities shouldn't be positioned with something that a lot of families would consider a tragedy. I don't like that those two things are juxtaposed that way. Mm-mm. No, not at all. That made me incredibly uncomfortable. Because it's like, Harper, you're so unwilling to have the family focus on you and what you think is going to be a negative experience that you have to throw your sister under the bus like that, which is shitty. It's incredibly shitty. But also, divorce is a choice. Like, even if, I mean, most of the time, you know, well, it is a choice. It's dependent on circumstances. And your identity, your orientation is not dependent on circumstances. Exactly. Yeah, that really, like... I was like that that whole scene was just gross. Also, in that scene, they just treated Jane like absolute shit. So bad. They treated Jane so bad only because Harper and Sloane were both getting treated poorly. And they also were like, well, we also have to make Jane miserable. It can't just be no one woman can experience happiness in this movie. So sorry. Which is really shitty because I mean, romance, yeah, you like the part the point of a romance is to have that happy ending and to have that that happiness and yeah there can be shitty things that happen along the way but like romance traditionally is you know for women written by women about women and the fact that it's like everyone must be miserable what right and i will say this this might be the hottest take of all i will say that my biggest disappointment in this whole movie 
was the romantic confession. The the fact that when Harper finally tracks Abby down and, you know, comes to apologize, it's at a fucking gas station, first of all. <laughs> Which, hey, as someone who eats at 7-Eleven three times a week, look, there's nothing wrong with a big gas station confessional. But when so much of the movie has been dependent on refusing to declare your love for another person in front of an audience, yeah, that happened in a gas station parking lot in front of someone who already knew about it, Feels like a punch in the gut. And I think that when we think of romance and we think of romantic comedies and we think of big ensemble cast romances like this, we don't want pulling up in an empty gas station parking lot. We want running through security at the airport. We want driving across town just to kiss for five minutes. We want Billy Crystal jogging, get there by midnight and show up in jeans and sneakers to the big New Year's Eve party. Um, with all the confetti raining down. We don't want it to be in a gas station parking lot, but apparently that's what the people who made this movie felt like Abby deserved, so that's what she got. And yeah, it just, I, I mean, really from the very beginning to the very end, it felt like Abby was consistently getting so short Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, there's a reason why the big gestures are important in, in romances, both books and movies. And the level of shitty that... Harper was the entire time like there was not enough of a transformation for me or an acknowledgement of like wow I've been really wrong and you deserve so 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 much better like there wasn't enough like there wasn't a big enough payoff for me to understand why Abby would just be like oh I love you too yay like I'm like no no I also feel at the beginning we don't see enough of their relationship being good. Like we we literally spend well more than half of the movie. I would say we spent like an hour and 20 minutes of the hour and 40 minute long movie seeing Harper be a bitch. <laughs> like she breaks up with Abby yeah. for no reason. She's like, you're being clingy and unreasonable. I'm like, uh, girl, you were out all night with your ex-boyfriend, right? not responding to her text, not telling her that you made it home safely. No, no, no. You don't you don't get to pull that card. And now and then and after that is when Abby starts hanging out more with Riley and they get a connection. And then she gets all jealous about that. I'm like, OK, hold up now. <laughs> Harper, you can't you can't have all the ways. Yeah. You, you asked your girlfriend to literally lie about everything and yet now you're getting mad that she's having fun without you when you won't like let her have fun with you you won't engage in your actual relationship yeah yeah it's i i I will say that by the end of it by the time like the end happened i was like okay well that was cute and i I was less angry i guess than i was the majority of the movie but I don't think it's going to be one that's like, hmm, which, what happy Christmas movie do I feel like watching now? Like, I don't think it's going to be Happiest Season. And that makes me really bummed. Oh, and, you know, I was actually, the very ending, you know, it ends with them all together as a family. And they're going to see It's a Wonderful Life. And I expected, I expected that to be when they got engaged. And then it's revealed that they are engaged. Uh, and I'm like, so we don't even get to see a proposal. Like, yeah, that felt cheap. That felt very cheap. It felt rushed and and shitty. And um, I mean, I was thinking, and I was I was thinking a little bit about like, okay, so the theme the theme that's like underlying this whole movie is like 
dishonesty and kind of, you know, hiding the nature of your relationship. And you and I, at, at the top of at the top of the hour, um, we discussed red, white, and royal blue, which is another mm-hmm. another piece of media that has a queer couple who can't reveal the depth of their feelings. Blah, 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 blah. And ultimately, in that story, the the fact that the two main characters are gay is ultimately not what makes them have to be careful about their relationship. I mean, it does certainly play a part. And especially because one of the characters is a royal, it plays a very big part. But ultimately, the climax of their relationship and their coming out to the whole world rests on, quite literally, the socio-political implications of their union. And to me, it seems like, okay, unless you're literally a narrative about the son of a president and a prince, I think that perhaps you can have your big climactic scene happen in front of people. Yeah. I don't really like the way that this movie played with identity. And when I think of other movies, I was trying to think, I was thinking of like, okay, well, what are other movies where, you know, the nature of the relationship is obscured? And The Proposal is one that I've seen several times. Very good. Good old Mm -hmm. Sandy B and Ryan Reynolds. And funnily enough, Mary Steenburgen. Um, oh, I forgot about that she's in that. Yeah. And it's, to me, it seems so weird that that the, the characters in that movie, which has an even more ridiculous premise, they seem to like each other so much more or grow to like each other so much more. They seem to have so much more emotional growth both on, on both ends. And I got to the end of Happiest Season and I felt like I hadn't seen anything. You know, it was like, okay, so this just seems like everyone suffered for 90 minutes and then we skip ahead a year and things are okay. But what happened in that year where these people feel like they've grown at all? Because um, I, yep. I still don't really feel like this relationship is justified. I would not, as much as I love Mackenzie Davis and the fact that she is built like a baby deer, <laughs> I would not date her if she treated me this way. Exactly. So in romance, in when you write romance, I mean, there's the thing that's called like the dark moment or the black moment. And that's when like everything is horrible. That's when like the couple breaks up or it looks like they'll never get together. Yeah. And then they have to figure out how to fix it. Normally, that's someone doing a grand gesture or whatever and realizing, oh, my God, like I fucked up. I need to fix this. Right. And I feel and that's a very, very important part of romance, in my opinion, in order for you to be rooting on this character and understand why they end up together in the end and why you think they should be together in the end. And the fact that they glossed over it so much in this movie was a very, I think was a a huge disservice for it. And I feel like they could have easily had cut some stuff out in the earlier in the movie or like streamlined it a little bit. So we could lengthen that part of it a little bit more. So you're not like left when they finally get back together and feeling like, yay I I guess like why do I care like I don't even want Abby to be with Harper at this point and I don't think Harper has earned this yeah I don't think that Harper's earned it and I I also feel as though I feel as though so much of the plot to you know you you just mentioned that you would cut some stuff in order to like extend that dark moment and have them have like that revelation and that big moment where they have you know a plot um the thing I would cut There is this weird and dumb and ill-advised, like, subplot about Harper's dad trying to be mayor. And that's why everything has to be perfect. 
would you have cut that? Because I would have cut that. I didn't write this movie, but fine. Oh, believe me. I, I, I feel like I spent a good chunk of the movie and after the movie, like in my brain, editing it <laughs> to how it could have been a much better and stronger thing. I knew you I was like, mm, as someone who cares about the romance part of a romantic comedy, Liz will have edited this in her brain into a much better film. Well, and, and you know, I think at the fact when Jeremy and I watched it, I don't even remember what day we watched it anymore, but it was either as I was at the very, very tail end of NaNoWriMo or mm-hmm. had just finished it. So like, I've, there are certain structures and beats that most romance novels and movies have. And it's not that it's formulaic, but it's just like cer- there's certain expectations that people have like, oh, okay, like this is when, like I said, like this is when they break up. This is when the grand gesture happens. Like there's certain things you expect at certain times. And, and yeah, of course you can play with that and switch things around. And I guess they were attempting to kind of like break the mold on this one, but they just fell short in my opinion and I think I think the they could have easily have shown the family the way that they are without the whole political thing he could have already been in politics yeah and not actively running and you know been like oh well we have to do people care that much about what your family looks like I don't know how big this where were they even I don't even know where they went care about mayors I don't know I don't know where. Yeah, I forget totally where this is even supposed to take place. It's like, because mm. are they? Do they start in New York City? I think that they. I think it was. I think it was. I know it was filmed. I think in Pittsburgh, but I don't know where it's supposed to be set. Because they live in a city, and then they drive to a town that is driving distance, right. but not like classic romantic holiday going from the big city to the small town yeah and i I would say it was probably more like medium-sized town but maybe not i mean that movie theater looked pretty like yeah small town but there was also a drag show so it's like okay so like there's maybe like a college town kind of situation that sounds right to me yeah that sounds right to me in talking about the expectations and kind of the beats that romances follow something that i've been thinking about a lot because i'm working on my own novel is when to meet a reader's expectations and when to challenge a reader's expectations. And since Mm -hmm. you're a writer, you know that a lot of the times if you set up those expectations for your reader and then you continually fail to meet those expectations, even throw them a singular bone, they won't keep reading. And it's a a lot easier, I think, to veg out for 90 minutes and watch a whole movie and say, okay, that was fine. And then it is to power through a book that's failing to meet your expectations. Yeah. But, But you're totally right in that it doesn't seem aware of those classic storytelling beats that you would have in a typical romance. And it's, it's definitely not a, I wouldn't say it's like in service to innovation for the film. I would say that it's definitely not in service to the film at all. It correct that it just makes it feel kind of dry and unsatisfying. A Christmas movie isn't the one to be like, I'm going to do something edgy and right. different. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you can, you can have, I don't know. Like I, I, I feel like if a rom, a rom-com already has certain expectations, but then you add the Christmas level to it. Then like, yeah. There's even more expectations then. Yeah, it's like, come on, you you know what I signed up for, and you they end this movie by showing part of or showing that they're about to watch. It's a Wonderful Life, which, yeah. in terms of knowing what to expect in a Christmas movie, come on, 
like it it just does oh it's self-aware in all the wrong places and totally mm-hmm. aware of itself where it needs to have a little bit of smartness intelligence is the word <laughs> me being a writer and then mar- being married to jeremy who writes and is a comedian i just feel like it's easy i guess for us to be critical right of movies like this you know something that's supposed to be a romance and a comedy and i hate that like i i try really hard to not have like writer brain or editor brain on when i watch things like this and most of the time i am perfectly fine with that like give me all the the hallmark cheesy movies i love it like and i i know what i'm going you know getting myself into with those kinds of things but i guess because this is what it is and like it has such an amazing cast and it is like the first lesbian romance uh christmas movie that i'm aware of or at least in a very long time like i feel like people were holding it to a higher expectation and a higher like it was on a pedestal and i feel like it didn't even tr- try to <laughs> to to make you know meet those expectations at all and i don't know yeah i mean and i i think that my biggest qualm is just that so much of the conflict is just who these characters are and their sexuality. And like, listen, I'm not, I'm not watching holiday rom-coms for their intellectual value. Not that they don't have it, but I'm watching it because I want to feel, you know, that, that burst of holiday whimsy in my soul. And if, yes, if I wanted to spend an hour and a half thinking about how my identity and my sexual orientation make me unacceptable to some people, I would like, call a random phone number from my hometown you know <laughs> like <laughs> and and just you know see who picks up and um yeah there's there's this is ostensibly intended for a queer audience but queer viewers don't really get any of the escapism like we're not we're not afforded that and so it's it's a bummer to me as a queer lady who you know didn't come out to her family till she was into her adult years. Like, it just feels so shitty that I'm forced to relive that. Um, and it's, you know, there are some coming out stories that feel like they're, I don't want to say more sympathetic to their queer characters, but it, and I don't want to say that they feel instructional, but it doesn't feel like it's punishing the viewer, you know? And there were, there were definitely times when I felt like this was, you know, my penance for daring to be a, uh, woman who likes women like sorry you have to watch this very specific being shoved in the closet scene you know yeah it was it was in it was it was like a stress dream it was like watching a stress dream about coming out well it's really interesting because I feel like um I've seen a lot of tweets and people talking on social media about about enjoying it and I'm like well that's good I'm glad I'm glad there are people who are enjoying it <laughs> I just right and, and and I don't know like I I just, I just thought it was going to be so much better. I had such high hopes. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to yuck other people's yums, but I am going to say for me, pretty yuck. Like mm, I, it is, it is not a movie I will likely watch again. I'm glad that I watched it. If only because there, I mean, there were, there were highlights throughout. Um, Yeah. There were, there were definitely good moments. I know we've mostly talked about the shitty stuff, but there were some good moments. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love any time that Alison Brie gets to be a killjoy. Like, mm, boy, do I just love to watch her watch everyone else have fun and have her just be as uptight as possible. That is my favorite kind of Alison Brie character. 
That is hilarious. Like, just put Alice and Brie there and let her ruin it for everyone else. That is my kind of movie. That's so funny. Oh, any, any scene that Dan Le- Levy was in was great. Yes. When he's, I mean, literally there's that part where he's just at home or, or house sitting and he's just on the phone by himself. And yeah. and I'm like, that's make that the movie. Just put him in a room with a phone. I want to watch him call his friends. That's give me that. And then and then him showing up and be like, oh, are you the ex-boyfriend? <laughs> and being like, oh, yes, that is I. Yes. I like wi- women. <laughs> yes. I love, I love that part. I also love the, uh, he's a milk man. That was, <laughs> that was very fun. Yeah. Um, watching Kristen Stewart try to lie the entire movie and every, like, and knowing that she's a bad liar, her character is a bad liar, was pretty delightful. <laughs> Yeah. She was I was like she's uncomfortable but doing it in like an endearing way. <laughs> yeah. She's just I mean and it's as much as like her character is kind of not not downtrodden but like I mean you know kind of sidelined she does make great work of it. I mean she's Kristen Stewart's a treasure and it's hard not to love her even when she's very clearly suffering. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I was just sad because it was like I think we watched it it came out November 25th. So we watched it a couple days later, but like pretty quickly after. Yeah. And Jeremy, Jeremy was like, so I assume we're going to watch hap- the, the the new Kristen Stewart movie tonight, right? And I'm like, wait, that's out? Yes, of course that's what we're watching. But like Jeremy just assumed, okay, we don't have plans tonight. We're going to watch a movie. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to watch this movie that Liz is excited about. And then we were both just kind of like, well, did they like not use the writer's room at all yeah. on this movie? Like, did they not workshop this? Like, what is happening? Yeah, it is not an instant classic, but I am glad that we got to watch this at home and didn't go to the theater for this one. Yes. And I am hoping that people will see it and be like, oh, there is space and want and desire for queer Christmas movies or holiday movies. And hopefully we'll get better ones next year. Give me, give me like a spinoff movie where Audrey Plaza's character is like, well, I'm alone for the holidays again. I guess I better, you know, go on a cross country road trip. And then like, you know, then it turns into this holiday road trip movie with Audrey Plaza and like, you know, she and this cute girl keep crossing paths. Give me that movie. Give me the spinoff of that. Give me the spinoff that has Dan Levy's character going on book tour with Jane and they both fall in love with other people. Like, Give me, give me those spinoffs. Give me those spinoffs, and I will. I, it will. Yeah, yeah. And that's the that's the thing that's frustrating. I think like there are characters that are really interesting in this movie, especially in those those three. Yeah. Um, and it's like okay, like the, and there is promise there. Like it's just it made me sad, and and I'm glad people are enjoying it, but I was rather disappointed. Like by the t- like I said, like by the time it's like it was over, I was like, well. I dislike it less than I did like 15 minutes ago. <laughs> but I but I was like that's not really high praise. No. Yeah, I don't think that that's what they're looking for on like the Nielsen ratings. They're like oh. <laughs> right when you finished it versus, you know, 20 to 30 minutes later. It's not it's not like, you know, um eating a, a questionable frozen burrito from your fridge. We're like, we're like, all right, I feel bad now, but we'll see how I am in 15 minutes. You know? <laughs> oh, happiest season. More like, 
I, I was going to make a funny, but I got nothing. Uh, <laughs> more, more like disappointment season. Happiest season? More like holiday treason against, uh, <laughs> against queers. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I am I'm glad that I watched it because then I got to talk about it with you, though. Yeah. Um, do you have any final thoughts on it? Um, I'm glad it got made. I'm glad. You know what I'm glad about? I'm glad that so many people watched it because I guess I guess Hulu had like not only crazy, crazy viewership of this, but also people signing up, people joining Hulu to watch it. Um, and that's a big deal, especially in these unprecedented times when everyone should already have every streaming service or someone else's password for that streaming service because we've all been trapped in our houses for a year. Um, the fact that this queer women-led movie um, mm. and a, a comedy, not a drama. So often the big name queer movies we get are like very tragic. Um, the fact that this drove so many people to sign up to see it makes me feel very hopeful that me too. at this time next year, we will have a much better lesbian Christmas movie to watch. And I really, really hope so. If you, if you need a guest um, for your podcast, have me back, please. <laughs> next year. Well, do you have any um, social media or way to people can find you? If they want to see what other movies you're tweeting about and things like that. Oh yes, they can. If you follow me at, at, Queen Hattie Jean on Twitter. Um, most recently, I tweeted about the holiday. Another very like formulaic one plus one equals two Christmas rom com, but much more satisfying. Um, yes, it's Jack Black, and that is just delightful. He's just adorable. Um, and am I gonna watch it a second time after I get off off this call with you? Maybe. Um, but- <laughs> Uh, I, you can follow me there and I tweet things and, um, I also share, you know, some of my comedy things there and, and other projects I'm working on. So if you, if you want the best of Hattie Hayes, uh, the Twitter is really the place to go. Uh, also sometimes I retweet my own mom and she's also very cool. So, um, if you want to see my mom tweeting at, um, at companies that have given her, shortchanged her on her, her taco shells or, um, screwed up her her pizza order uh i retweet all of those so come come give me a follow that is hilarious she's, she's delightful also if you follow her uh she'll follow you back and she will respond to your tweets in earnest it is very cute oh i will definitely have to follow your mother um okay so traditionally here at dick of the week we end each episode with a pickup line so i googled sexy christmas pickup lines so if you could please pick a number between one and 30 oh my goodness 13 13 <laughs> okay do you like the song jingle bells because we could go all the way wow this is a better woman woman romance than happiest season <laughs> <laughs> We have more chemistry (laughs) than they did for the whole movie. I'll take it. That was delightful. Ho, ho, ho. Thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you, so contact us at lnlsmutcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at lnlsmutcast. Find episodes of this and other great shows at calamitycast.com, 
or wherever you find your podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Dick of the Week. This has been a Calamity Cast production. For more content, visit calamitycast.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.